0: Thanks to Bruce and Barb Dernally for reading our scripture today. And as you heard, today we get into Jonah chapter 4. We'll be spending a few weeks here in this underappreciated final chapter of the book of Jonah. But really, don't you wish that this wasn't part of the Bible? Isn't there a sense in which the message that you just heard read almost sounds odd, if not (laughs) against the message of the Bible? I mean, imagine if we had a missionary giving a report, like last week when the Samuelsons gave us an update. And this missionary is, say, in a country hostile to the gospel, maybe on the terrorist list. And their report indicated that Hundreds of people were turning to Christ and being baptized. And then the report concludes with them actually regretting their conversations with people, their conversions of the people, and expressing anger at God for even sending sending them there in the first place. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure uh, a report like that wouldn't even make it if we knew ahead of time what it would say. It would be so dissonant. It's absolutely ridiculous. And yet, that is Jonah chapter 4. I think if it was us writing the Bible, we would end the book of Jonah in chapter 3, where we ended last week, where the Ninevites repented. In fact, I want you to watch and listen to another rendition of the entire book of Jonah, this time in a children's Bible
1: jonah goes to nineveh as read from the rhyme bible storybook god said to jonah i have a little task get up and go to nineveh and do what i ask the people there are wicked so tell them to obey but jonah got on board a ship and sailed the other way "Uh uh-oh jonah you better go to nineveh god sent a windstorm to shake up the boat The frightened sailors worried that it wouldn't stay afloat. Jonah had been sleeping, but he heard the captain cry, Everybody pray, or we all may die. Uh Uh-oh, Jonah, you should have gone to Nineveh. Jonah told the sailors, It's all because of me. I'm sure the wind will stop if you throw me in the sea. They didn't want to do it, but the wind howled and roared. So they picked up Jonah and threw him overboard. Uh Uh-oh, Jonah, you should have gone to Nineveh. Jonah hit the water, the wind stopped blowing, the boat stopped lurching, and the waves stopped rolling. But God prepared a fish, and as soon as it arrived, it opened up its mouth and swallowed him alive. Uh Uh-oh, Jonah, you should have gone to Nineveh. Down went Jonah with a great big swish. He landed at the bottom in the belly of a fish. For three days and three nights he stayed that way. Then he prayed for help and promised to obey. That's better, Jonah. It's time to go to Nineveh. Jonah was relieved when he saw what God had planned. The fish threw his and tossed him on the land. God said to Jonah, I want them to repent, so go preach to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah went. That's good, Jonah. I'm glad you went to Nineveh. The end?
0: See? <laughs> it's not the end. And since it's not the end, and since you all heard the real end of the story, the book of Jonah is not really about the Ninevites and God, or it would end in chapter 3. It's about Jonah and God, but like we've been saying since we are Jonah, the book is about us and God. So today, I would like to just take the first four verses and we will look at God's response to Jonah's anger. In fact, in order to really set the stage, I'm going to read verse 10 of chapter 3 and then the first three verses. The Word of God says, when God saw that they, the Ninevites, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways... He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah tells God, that he had been wrestling with God way back when God first came to him, when he was living in his hometown up there in the north of the country of Israel in Galilee. Jonah knew his Bible well. In fact, he praised God's own words back to God from Exodus 34, that says that God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. But he also knew that God might just forgive those people who repent. But he also tragically knew that he himself was not like God. If I could reword Exodus 34, his prayer, he would say, I am not gracious and compassionate, but quick to anger and abounding in hatred. And I'm one who rejoices in God sending calamity. You see, I think his hatred was probably stoked by personal experience of where he grew up. If you look at a map of Israel, you'll see his hometown is up there by the Sea of Galilee. And Assyria and its border was just a few miles away. That was the big empire that will eventually come and crush the 10 tribes in the north. But before they did that, they had raiding parties come in and attack different villages and cities. And I'm just guessing that Either Jonah personally experienced that or maybe knew someone who had been captured or killed or had their things robbed by these bandits, these terrorists. What I do know is that Jonah looked at those Ninevites as people who were fit for destruction. They were incapable of repentance, and they were certainly beyond the pale of God's forgiveness, let alone his Jonah's love for his own country and his hatred of their country made him reluctant to go and warn them as God commanded. He admits this. But once he was there and saw their repentance, now Jonah is furious with God when they don't get what he thought they deserved, when they're not destroyed. And He doesn't even want to live in a world where God acts that way toward his enemies. Since God wouldn't destroy the Ninevites, get this, Jonah asked God to destroy him. His loss of hope was so great, his depth of frustration so deep that there was just no way forward, no hope. It was like Jonah gave God that ultimatum, either to destroy them or destroy me. Can you hear the pride oozing out of this prayer? Here's the real issue. Jonah calls God's forgiveness of the Ninevites wrong. Do you see that in verse 1? He says it's very wrong. The Hebrew word there can also be translated evil. Jonah is critical of God's actions. He finds God's forgiveness displeasing, some translations say. That's too mild a word. He calls it evil. It offends his sense of justice and what is right. And when he realizes there's no way to win against God, he'd rather die. This pattern of craving to be control in life, of demanding our own way, of wanting to call God wrong, that's at the heart of rebellion and sin. But remember, we are Noah. Have you ever been angry with God? I remember many years ago when I was in my mid-twenties, newly married, finishing my last year of seminary. My dad was dying of cancer at 62 years old. And I didn't think it was right for God to take my dad. And I remember praying and weeping and arguing with God and sometimes being angry with God because he did die and life wasn't the way I thought it should be. It wasn't right according to my playbook. Many years later, we had a Jewish scholar lecturing at our university. His father was famous. He was a rabbi in New York City, had written many books. His son, the speaker, was a Jewish scholar in Jewish history. And after his lecture, I went up to him just one-on-one, and I thanked him for what he said. And then I I said, I'm curious, what branch of Judaism are you a part of? And he told me, none. He said, since I'm a historian and have studied the Holocaust with my people, I don't believe in God anymore. Since God wasn't right to allow the Holocaust for this Jewish scholar, his anger turned to apathy. And I think atheism. Now, some of you might very well be angry at God for a host of reasons. Maybe, maybe some of you say, my spouse or my child is not walking with Christ now like they were or like I had hoped for, like I had prayed for. And God, why? That's not right. And by saying that, at least you're praying, but you're subtly shaking your fist at God saying, you're not doing things according to my rules. Maybe you get upset with God when your prayers are never answered the way you want them to be. And this seems wrong, and you're frustrated, and maybe you even wonder whether there is a God or whether it's worth praying to him. Well, what might God think of your anger? We find it in verse 4. Here's what he thought of Jonah's request to die. Verse 4 says But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? After hearing Jonah's prayer, that's filled with complaints and insults and self pity, and finally with a death request, what does God do with that final request? He asks a question? Instead of answering it, yes, get ready to die, this gracious and compassionate God graciously asks Jonah, a question, to get him thinking, to draw him into a conversation. This merciful move of God is exactly what God did to Jonah earlier in the story. Remember when he's running away from God and it says God provided a fish. Now, the fish could have digested Jonah and ended his life. That looks like <laughs> why he was swallowed. But actually, he lived through it. And when the fish spit out Jonah, he was alive and kicking and went. Have you seen this, um, could we call it, pattern of mercy first elsewhere in Scripture? My favorite place is to go all the way back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve rebelled and ran away from God under the penalty of death, God came, and what did he do? What did he do from seeing that those two people had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The Hebrew words are the same that we find here. Good, right, and evil, wrong. What does God do? He asks the question, where are you? Just like he did to Jonah. This begins a conversation with Adam and Eve about their sin, their need for repentance, and it reveals, doesn't it, how God always leads first with grace, with mercy. And he's doing that for us today. God is asking us we who are angry, is it right for you to think that I am wrong? May I ask, how real is your trust in God's loving sovereignty? God is good, period when we learn to settle into God's arms, much like what Linda said about those two little girls nestled next to her, when we learn that and rest in Him, that begins to change us. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote those so encouraging words in Romans 8. Many of you know them by heart. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called from before creation, called by his mercy according to his good purpose. May not be good to us, may not feel good, but it is good. Knowing this in our mind, different than welcoming it in our hearts, isn't it? Let's be honest. (laughs) We usually think we know what's right. We know what's better. So this morning, I would like to just talk about what it's like now. These past, what, six months have felt like six years. We have the suffering, the fear of both the virus and the upcoming elections. And so many people think that they are right about so many issues. So, let's talk about the elephant in the room today: voting, the election. The pastors have been answering emails, many. In fact, I'm sorry if we haven't replied to you all, but we intend to. Uh, we are having conversations. We're trying to listen well, watch videos well, (laughs) reply well, lovingly and accurately. And uh, we even produced a short video, I I hope you saw it, a few weeks ago where the three of us sat around on the PLT and talked about some of these issues for maybe about, uh, what, almost 15 minutes. We're trying to shepherd you through many pitfalls and temptations that come to us all. And look, it's not easy. I know it's not easy for you. It's not easy for us as well. Please give us your prayers. Give us patience. Um, I don't think it's going to get any easier, in the near term at least. So I would like to address some issues that I hope will move your heart more to rest in God and depend on him and, and love others. So let me start with a question. Here's the question. Do you think you are right in your vote for the upcoming election? <laughs> and of course, I know what you're going to say. Probably, right? because. If you've thought about it, if you have any opinion, it's not a neutral opinion, yes, you've come to a decision. You are right. But here's my second follow-up. What if your vote, your candidate, is wrong? What if it doesn't work out the way you vote? What if right becomes wrong? More specifically, if the Democrats win, will you be angry at God? If the Republicans win, will you be angry at God? Now, does your frustration, even now with me saying this, at the thought of not getting your way, does that make you angry even a little bit at God? And maybe at other people in the body of Christ? As one of your pastors charged with shepherding God's people, I am not going to tell you today who to vote for. That's between you, it's on your conscience, and God. You should educate yourself about the issues from Scripture. You should be informed. And remember that there are 10 commandments that God gave, not just one or two. There's actually many more than 10. It's your biblical duty to be salt and light, as well as your American privilege, to vote. I hope you do. What I'd like to do now is to give you three things that will help us navigate over these next few weeks and months, possibly years, that will stabilize our hearts in God. And here's the first one. First, we need to repent of two sins that Christians are struggling with at this moment. Since love for country must never exceed love for God. I hope we would all agree with that, right? The first of the Ten Commandments is to love God supremely with everything you have. Jesus reaffirmed that. If that's true, we must examine ourselves for the sin of making our nation an idol above our God. C.S. Lewis, who was a citizen of the United Kingdom, wrote almost 100 years ago, a man may have to die for his country, but no man must, in an exclusive sense, live for his country. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation is rendering to Caesar that which most emphatically belongs to God, Himself. Now you will know that you are struggling with worshiping our nation more than God when the 4th of July is more important than Easter Sunday. And when being a good American looks very similar to being a good Christian. And when God bless America means more to you than God save Americans. And when the gospel of the good American life is more the topic of your conversation than the gospel of eternal life, in the kingdom of God. And when saving America from destruction is more important than saving Americans from eternal destruction in hell. And when promises made to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament are brought over and applied to the United States one-to-one, God has no favored nation today. And when the emotions you feel right now and coming up, after the election even, affect you more than the suffering that's going on right now in Azerbaijan and Armenia, And we have people in our church who have friends and relatives in both countries, and they're asking us to pray for peace and that the persecution of the Christians there would lessen. And if some of you don't know what I'm talking about, well, there it is. And finally, when you have more in common with a non-Christian who agrees with you and your political views, than a Christian who doesn't. I know I'm pushing in hard, but hear me. We need to repent of the sin of national idolatry. I need to. The second sin that we need to repent for is discord among Christians. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5 when he lists a number of works of the flesh, the sinful nature, he says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. And then he says... If you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Some of you have been bitten, and some of you are biting, and it ought not to be. This week, the pastors received an email that was critical of that video that I mentioned a few moments ago that we produced about two weeks ago. And this concerned member of Chelton wrote another email a few days after the first one with these words, and I asked permission. It said, would you please forgive me for my arrogance? I apologize for judging for speaking rashly, for being unloving and contentious. I repent of all of that." Well, I know when I got that email, at first I thought, oh, wow. And then I wrote this person back quickly, and I said, can we have a conversation? And we did later that day for almost an hour and one question i had was what what changed you from the first to bringing you to she said i was reading john chapter 17 where jesus is praying for the unity and the love that should exist in the church in the body of christ and she said i was just broken and i was broken To hear how God had worked in her heart, oh me of little faith. I told her, and so did all of our pastors who got that email, thank you for that example for all of us. Do you care more for the position that people hold, or for the people that hold the position? we must repent of our sins. I say it again. In particular, the sin of idolatry of our nation and the sin of discord, dissension. That's the first. Second thing I'd like to encourage us is to pray. To pray for the election coming up, our nation, the Church of Christ here and around the world, and the spread of the gospel. And all of that is summed up by Paul in 1 Timothy 2. Here's what he writes. I urge then, first of all, most importantly of all, that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness this is good and pleases God our savior who wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth paul never preached rebellion against his government and man, if anybody could nero was on the throne christians were being murdered as Paul one day would be. But Paul preached prayer, prayer for the government that would allow the church to be the church in living out the gospel, in holy living, and in reaching people with the gospel, because God wants all people to be saved. That's what Paul says. That's what we should say, and that's what we should do. That's that's the priority, folks. Only the gospel can change people. Human laws can only restrain people. But God's laws in their hearts can transform people. That's what God does. We must pray for God to convert people to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and King. As you heard earlier from Linda, we're having a week of prayer that starts tomorrow evening at 7.30. And we'll not be praying for specific candidates or parties, but rather we'll be humbling ourselves before God, asking for wisdom for our current leaders and for humility, unity, and love across the church, for peace and justice and the good of all people in our nation, and that the kingdom of God will grow as people see the need, and that that need can only be met in Jesus Christ. So please, plan to join us one night or more. When you zoom in, you don't have to pray. If you just want to pray along silently in your heart, That's great as well. Repent, pray, third and finally, rest. We must find our rest in God. Jesus has already won, not the election, no, something much bigger. He's won the cosmic war that was here from day one, the war with Satan and sin and death. And he has obtained the right to rule the universe by his death and his resurrection. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. He alone is worthy. Nothing happens without his sovereign permission and loving decree. Do those words feel like taking a deep breath and just falling back into the care of our beautiful Savior? God has already established all the authorities around the world and here and all the ones that will be elected. Romans 13 says, The authorities that exist have been established by God, yes. Nero, Paul, yes. So what does that mean? That means that the chain of command doesn't start in the voting booth or in the Capitol or in the White House. It starts in heaven and it trickles down as God gives authority and takes authority to human rulers. This truth should bring rest to our souls. Only Jesus can bring us out of feeling trapped and frustrated and frightened and angry. You know, Jonah, he didn't want to go to Nineveh, and later he was angry at God and wanted to die for his own little self-interests, since he couldn't imagine living in a world where God forgave the very people that he despised. And yet, Jesus, who didn't want to drink that cup of God's wrath, was obedient to his Father and in love wanted to die for others. Since he came to create a world where God forgives people who hate him, In my office at home, I have two things that remind me of these two truths that we're wrestling with. Render to Caesar, render to God. One of them is a helmet, a war helmet, that my dad told me he took off a dead Nazi in Italy in World War II. And I have it on the top of my bookshelf there. And when I look at it, I'm reminded of what America did that was just and right, and that my dad could have given his life for, and so many men and women did. And I'm proud to be an American. But there's something else I have on my bookshelf. Maybe you can see it here. It's a uh, Celtic cross. And this was given to me about 10 years ago when we left a mission trip in Ireland. This was given by the small church that was being planted that we helped uh, in VBS and some other things. And I don't know if you've heard of a Celtic cross, but it represents Christianity coming to those islands of the United Kingdom in the fifth and sixth centuries, 1,500 years ago, when missionaries came from the Roman Empire to the terrorists in the north. And many of them gave their lives to convert them to the true God, to Jesus, who forgives sin and helps them love one another. And when I look at this, and when I look at that helmet, It helps me keep them in focus. Only by trusting completely in Christ do we find real rest in the middle of the storm. So go to him now, today, tomorrow, and forever. Let's pray. Our God... We thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. May our words be those of the Apostle Paul, that we have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. Yet, not us, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we live in this body We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray, amen.